Chimpa for um, inviting me and, and all of you for coming. You can all hear me. This new format is, is weird for me. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I attended a few of these seminars uh, when I was here between sort of 2008 and 2013. Uh, so it's, it's great to be back and, and to see um, that not, not too much has changed. Uh, it is also, as you know, um, a very exciting time in investor state arbitration, right? Uh, so in response to a perceived legitimacy crisis, which you see represented on your left, uh, dramatic reforms were proposed, right? Represented here, um, here with the teddy bear. Uh, proposed, this is posted by the, the chief European Commission official um, who deals with investor state arbitration. Uh, and those negotiations are, are un ongoing at UNCTRAL, the United Nations uh, Committee on International Trade Law and Working Groups 3. And what they're discussing is a variety of reform proposals, but most prominently the idea for a new multilateral investment court. Um, as you mentioned, I, I attend these negotiations as an observer, so if anyone would like to discuss anything that's, that's going on um, in this field today, I'd be very happy to in the Q&A. But what I want to do with my remarks is take us back to three moments that I think got us here. So I want to take us back to the vision that inspired investor state arbitration in the early 1950s. Then I want to look at how investor state arbitration clauses were added into investment treaties. Um, and finally, I want to look at America's embrace of investor state arbitration. Uh, and I think I have a little bit different take on these moments than what may be reported in, in conventional investment law textbooks. So hopefully uh, it will be a little bit of fun today. So my remarks draw from the monograph which was published last year um, and it traces the idea of investor arbitration and key individuals in it from the Anglo-Iranian oil case at the ICJ in the early 1950s to NAFTA in 1954. But the bulk of the book analyzes the 1950s and 1960s and I used letters and internal memos and drafting notes to probe, to the extent that investor state arbitration had founding fathers, what did they perceive as their constraints? What were their motivations? What was their thinking as they were writing these, these conventions and treaties? And so for me, the personal experiences of key individuals really matter for what law and whose law emerges. So in the archives, I kept finding connections between the Second World War and investment law, which surprised me because we're taught to connect investment treaties to decolonization, right? Not the Second <coughs> World War, or at least I was. Yet, why was it that it's Germany that drafts the first BIT? And maybe it's because Germany, West German diplomatic and military presence was curtailed after World War II, right? So they couldn't use diplomatic protection. But I think it's deeper. I think that the idea of using international law to protect property resonated with a generation of German business people and officials who had lived through targeted expropriations along ethnic and religious lines, and then they lived through post-war restitution trials, right? So they'd seen upheaval, and then they'd seen the use of international law to remedy upheaval. And so in some ways, I think the idea for individual standing in investment law comes out of the same intellectual milieu as the idea for individual standing in human rights after World War II, right? Eli Lauterpacht and a few of the other legal minds are involved in both. They're thinking about human rights and they're thinking about investment law. Um, and they're doing this in the early 1950s. But we'll come back to all of that. Uh, the book is based on archival documents 
primarily from four governments, the American, the British, the German, and the Swiss governments. And then it also draws on World Bank archives, a couple other countries as well. Um, and this is a little bit strange. I put all of the archival documents that I cited in the book online in the qualitative data repository. So if you go to that link, you can download any one of the archival documents that, that I used. Um, and today I want to show you a couple of those documents to make the world these officials inhabited more concrete, right? Um, so, on to the first of the three moments. As you all know, the ICSID Convention emerges, right? This is the founding foundational treaty for investor state arbitration. Um, it opens to ratification in 1965. Yet, to most international officials who were thinking about investment promotion or investment protection in the 1960s, it was not at all clear that investment arbitration was the best idea, was what should emerge in an international convention. So these ideas, these, there were three ideas that were being discussed in formal intergovernmental negotiations in the 1950s and 1960s around investment protection. And they are insurance, the idea of a multilateral code, and then the idea of a standalone investment arbitration code. And in the 1960s, it looked to most observers like a multilateral insurance agency was going to be what was created out of this moment, not arbitration. So this is an American document, um, and it notes that an expert OECD report had said that an insurance agency posed no technical or legal difficulties, right? So all the hurdles were gone, it was clear. The World Bank was tasked with drafting um, a, a charter for this insurance organization. And so from the outside, it looks like multilateral insurance is what is going to be a go for investment protection. So why was it that an insurance agency was not what was created at the bank in the 1960s? This is a document from 1961 written by the German executive director of the World Bank. Um, and he's recounting conversations where European and American officials are very enthusiastic about the idea of insurance, but the relevant World Bank officials, and one in particular, Aaron Brockes, then Assistant General Counsel at the World Bank, do not believe that the World Bank should become involved with insurance. And this German official is really perceptive because Brockes does not believe that the World Bank should become involved with insurance. But why? Why doesn't the World Bank want to get involved with insurance? Well, in this interview, uh, which is done about 15 years later, Brockes is saying the statistical value of insurance can't be proven. And what's interesting to me, and to any of you who know about how these debates about arbitration happen, um, is that Brockes never even tries to generate statistical evidence to show that investment arbitration will contribute more investment. So he uses a standard to say we shouldn't get involved with insurance that he never applies to arbitration. But we'll come back to that. Um, so in any case, insurance, which had been arguably the predominant approach, what looked like it was going to be created in the 1960s, doesn't emerge. So the second option is one that's probably much more familiar to, to you. It's a multilateral code, right? Plus a court or arbitration, depending on the draft that we're talking about. That switches over time. And so as lawyers or people interested in, in the law, this option makes the most sense to us, right? It's a single multilateral treaty setting out substantive standards with a court to interpret those standards. Of course, this is not what emerges in the 1960s either. And I want to highlight two reasons why 
this OECD draft, which many of you know as the Abshakras draft, failed. Because I think now we have enough evidence to correct some misperceptions. So first, over time, an impression has grown that OECD states could not agree, um, sorry, that OECD states could agree to the substantive standards in a multilateral investment <laughs> treaty. It was just developing states that were being difficult and saying no, right? But on the contrary, it's actually disagreements within the OECD that kill the Abshakos draft. So this is a document where British officials are stating that their government cannot comply with several of the substantive standards in the draft. And um, not on this slide, but elsewhere, they find arbitration a particular non-starter. And why? That's because they're thinking of themselves as respondents. So there are really interesting conversations in 1958 where British officials play through what would happen if a case was brought by a German firm against the British government at the time. And to them, as they think through that, that's a political nightmare. So they say, we cannot have German firms bringing arbitration cases against us. We don't want arbitration. And it's not just the British. The US government at the time is also firmly opposed. Um, so the stated reason that America gives in this position paper from 1961 is because developing countries are not in the room. But behind that, there are all sorts of strategic Cold War concerns. America didn't want to be associated with former colonizers. Um, and there are domestic political obstacles. So America is not on board with the multilateral convention either. But the most interesting reason why this OECD draft or the Abshawcross does not emerge is because European governments, the main supporters of this draft, stop supporting it when they realize they can get stronger standards, they can get higher investment protection bilaterally. So in the scholarly literature, there's an impression, right, that it's only after the OECD draft collapses that we get the move to bilateral investment treaties, or, or BITS, as they're known. That European governments wanted to go multilaterally, but developing states couldn't agree, so then they went bilaterally. But actually, it's the opposite. The draft collapses because the main supporters, the Swiss, the Germans, and a couple other European countries, start to prefer BITS. And so this slide shows the evolution in the Swiss position um, from preferring a multilateral approach in 1962 to then later saying bits are better than the OECD draft and later requesting an end to multilateral discussions because those discussions are weakening the Swiss negotiating position bilaterally. So what ends up happening is that Germany and France and Britain and America get together and they actually consult developing countries in 1962 on the OECD draft or Abschakras versus bits. And so as you can see from this table of responses, and this is my translations, um, they, they learn a lot, including that they think some countries might be willing to agree bilaterally to things they won't agree to in a multilateral setting. So the prospects are never good for a multilateral agreement, but it doesn't emerge because of a loss of European support. Okay, so the third option in the 1960s is a standalone arbitration organization. And this, as you all know, is what actually emerges in the end. But at the time, it's called the third approach, as you see here. And that is from an interview with Aaron Brockes, who is, again, World Bank General Counsel by that time. And he is, as we know him today, the father of ICSID. So these three proposals, the insurance, the code, and arbitration, were all under intergovernmental consideration. People like Brockes worked on all three. They very much saw the three as, as complementary or as different options. So again, what 
in my analysis, makes the difference. Why does arbitration, which even Brockes calls the third option, why is that what emerges while the others don't? I think one common answer that you've probably all are familiar with is that we have investors in arbitration today because investors, firms, had a strong preference for it. Um, but actually, out of these three options, investors were likely to know the least about arbitration. So that probably isn't why investors said arbitration is what emerged. And I really looked for uh, evidence of, of lobbying, evidence of investor interest in arbitration. Um, but it's, it's re there's remarkably little evidence in the archives of investor interest in arbitration. We can find investor interest in other things at the time, but not arbitration. Um, so one survey that I will discuss later was conducted by the International Chamber of Commerce in 1962, and only 16% of investors think that arbitration might matter for the investment climate of a country. So, so not good evidence. Another, another reason why people think arbitration is what emerged is right because powerful governments might have pushed for it. But again, the US government preferred insurance to arbitration, and they were pretty lukewarm about arbitration. And I think that's true as well. So it's the, the powerful government story is, is also not a convincing reason why it emerges. So I argue what makes the difference, why it's arbitration that emerges, is because of the active role that the World Bank plays to, us, to kind of massage the idea of investors in arbitration, to frame it, to sponsor it. And they refused to play a similar role for insurance or for the idea of a code. And the key person at the World Bank on these issues is Aaron Brockes, right? So Brockes had fled the Netherlands in 1938 to do an LLM and soon after, his family's firm was expropriated and his family was murdered in the Holocaust. So Brockes believes in the power of in international law. He believes individuals standing against states can help to resolve intractable disputes peacefully. Right? He's someone who had completed a PhD in international law in Amsterdam in the 1930s. So for him, arbitration is imbued with these kind of rich interstate peacekeeping ideas. Right? He sees it very differently to maybe how we see it today. Um, so he connects it to the Hague conferences, to that kind of early 20th century idealism. And he genuinely, fervently believes that providing investors with access to arbitration would help poor and newly independent states. So he is a man with, with a vision. right? And he starts outlining this vision in the 1950s. He starts outlining a vision for a standalone arbitration center that would be the fulcrum around which bilateral treaties, contracts, and domestic laws would all refer cases. So that vision was very, very clear in the 1950s. Then he works over four decades, the rest of his life, to make that vision into a reality. And of course, the first step towards making that vision a reality is drafting the Exit Convention. And by default, I think when we hear the idea of a multilateral convention being drafted, I was actually just talking with Dapo Okande about similar examples to what I'm going to describe to you, right? When we hear multilateral drafting, we think government representatives in a room, checking back with their capital, redrafting, voting, right? We think of intergovernmental deliberation. But that's not how the exit convention was written about. Um, that's, not how, sorry, that's not how it actually happened. That is, of course, how we're used to having it written about with these travaux being referred to um, sort of as though they captured intergovernmental deliberation. But that's not what was going on. So the first drafts of the convention are written by the legal department of the World Bank. They're written within the World Bank. 
Um, ben Brockes and a, a small staff with the World Bank organized four regional consultations, not negotiations, consultations, to explain the idea of investor state arbitration to states and to ask if they might be willing to ratify something like exit. But importantly, the people that they're asking are not representing their governments. They are experts designate. They are attending in their personal capacity. Um, some were not even employed by the governments that sent them. Right? The World Bank had asked for experts. They hadn't asked for government representatives. And the World Bank has four regional consultations, but minutes are not circulated between the different regions. Why is that? Well, we have Brazil, right, making opposition, make, kind of making a critique of the convention in one setting. Then we have India making a very similar case. Then maybe we have Thailand in another regional meeting. But those states didn't know that their critiques were echoed in other regions. So it prevents opposition from uniting. So eventually, there's a drafting committee in Washington which Bracas opens with a statement in which he says something like, this committee will not consider if the treaty is a good idea. That has already been decided in the affirmative. So again, at that final drafting committee in Washington, people are attending as experts designate, not as representatives, and all comments are advanced as suggestions to the World Bank. The power to amend the convention always remained with Bracas in the chair. So at no point in the drafting of ICSID is there formal intergovernmental deliberation. And I think this matters, or maybe we can discuss if it matters in the Q&A. Um, you may be familiar, Jillian uh, Davis Mortensen has just written, or five years ago, not just, has written an influential article uh, on the non-definition of investment in the ICSID convention, right? So investment, key term, not defined. Um, Mortensen argues tribunals should treat the definition of investment under the convention as encompassing any plausibly economic activity or asset because criteria for the definition of investment were explicitly considered and rejected during the drafting process. And so in Mortensen's account, the non-definition of investment was a compromise drafted by the British government to intentionally keep the definition of investment as broad as possible. For Mortensen, the British government is the authoritative actor and that's what we should use as guidance. Yet, British officials themselves didn't see it that way. So just after the convention came into force, British officials in Washington at the embassy were instructed to go to the World Bank and ask Bracas to clarify the definition of investment. And so these British officials go and have a quiet word with Bracas, um, and then they report back, and that's what you see on the bottom here. Um, they report back that Bracas was quite clear that investment was always intended to be interpreted in the widest possible way. But this exchange shows us that at least for the British government, the final word on the convention is with Brockes, right? Not with them. Um, so to conclude the, the first moment, um, the ICSID convention, not insurance or a code, emerges in the 1960s. And I argue it emerges in large part because World Bank officials believe in arbitration and they work hard and they work very strategically to make it reality. So the second moment then is the addition of arbitration of investor state arbitration clauses, clauses providing consent into bilateral investment treaties. And of course, this is what creates investment treaty arbitration, which is what leads us later to the legitimacy crisis in which we arguably find ourselves today. 
So as some of you know, the conventional wisdom has been that investment treaty arbitration was unexpected, right? Um, it was unforeseen in the 1960s, the idea that treaties could provide jurisdiction. And I think that's wrong. I think there's strong evidence showing that Brockes and others had a clear vision of contracts, domestic laws, and treaties providing access to ICSID before and during the drafting of the convention. So this 1960, it's a UN report, um, says that if an arbitration organization at the World Bank were created, it could serve as the fulcrum around which substantive bilateral um, and possibly multilateral agreements could be drafted. And that's five years before ICSID. So people are thinking about this idea, but the formal drafting hasn't yet started. And this UN report, I should be clear, is not written by Brockes, but it is written, British notes tell us, after conversations with Brockes. And my sense is the couple pages on arbitration at the World Bank reflect his thinking. Um, so I also found, this is one of my favorite documents. It's a 1961 American Bar Association draft convention that proposes an arbitration center at the World Bank. And this was not written by Brockes, but again, it was drafted after conversations with him, and it mentions treaty-based consent. And this draft is really fascinating because it emerges out of a committee associated with the ABA, and it includes Eli Lauterpacht, Aaron Brockes, Georges Delhomme, who was an, a really interesting French lawyer at international organizations, and George Haight, an American who was very instrumental in getting America to ratify the New York Convention for commercial arbitration. So this interesting collection of individuals, and I think of this draft as a sort of proto-draft, very unofficial, of the ICCID Convention. I should say Antonio Parra and others who study ICCID do not agree with me on this. Um, but I think this draft is useful because it has, on some points, it has more clarity than the final ICCID draft that emerges. So for instance, the idea that treaties would provide consent to investors at arbitration is relatively clear, I think, in this ABA draft. And then it's not clear in the draft, the first draft that the World Bank circulates to states a couple of years later. Another place where this ABA draft is clear is a question that many of you are probably familiar with. It's given rise to a lot of scholarship from Zachary Douglas, Eric de Bendere, Jose Alvarez, many others. Is investment treaty arbitration public law? Is it private law? Is it a hybrid, right? That's a question we're familiar with. Um, and I know these pictures are hard to read. I'm sorry about that. But in the source notes on this side, on the top, there's a clause from, they say we've taken this clause from an International Chamber of Commerce agreement. And then as you go further down the page, they take clauses from um, International Court of Justice. They take clauses from, uh, they say in other parts, here's International Court of Justice here. Um, and I think down here, there's more International Court of Justice, there's some World Bank statutes and articles of agreement. So they are taking from multiple sources as they write this draft, public and private. But to return to the big question of this section, how are investor state clauses added to investment treaties? So here I think Brockes and World Bank officials not only understand treaty-based consent, I think they do more than anyone else to make treaty-based arbitration into reality. So in the book, I frame this provocatively as would arbitration clauses have been added to treaties without Brockes and the World Bank doing what they did? And of course, we can't know the answer to that, right? 
we can't go back and, and live this time period again. But I think there's enough evidence to justify asking that question. Because, of course, the first bilateral investment treaties do not include investment arbitration, right? Investor state arbitration. They include state state. The world's first bit is drafted in Germany in the late 1950s. And the idea of investment treaties and arbitration was better known in Germany than almost anywhere else. Um, I'm not convinced there was widespread investor interest in Germany, but there are certainly a few extraordinary individuals who have personal experience of expropriation who are really strongly pushing this initiative. They're pushing the idea of investment treaties and arbitration or a court. And at the center of this group, um, you couldn't ask for a better photo, right? At the center of this group is Hermann Epps, who had been uh, Deutsche Bank's foreign operations chief during World War II, which meant he'd been instrumental in organizing the expropriations of Jewish-owned property um, in the Netherlands, in Czechoslovakia, in a lot of different countries. Um, he is rehabilitated, so by the 1950s, he's probably the most experienced person in the world uh, as an expropriator and as an expropriatee. Right? He really knows what he's talking about when he is proposing these, these treaties. Um, so in the post-war era, Hermann Abs is an advisor to the first chancellor of Germany. Um, he's later, he becomes chairman of Deutsche Bank. He's incredibly influential. And he really, really wants a Magna Carta for investment, or for property, is how he frames it. He wants a multilateral code backed by a court or, if not a court, by arbitration, or both. Um, he wants investors to have individual standing. When it becomes clear the multilateral court is dead, he lobbies for bits with arbitration access. So he is a very important part of the German story. And these are the German drafting notes as they're writing the world's first bilateral investment treaty. There are a lot of meetings. They discuss the model draft very carefully before they take it to Pakistan. And while that German BIT is being drafted or, or written, German officials meet with Hermann Abs's deputy, who is a lawyer named Paul Krebs, to discuss Article 8, which is the article in the German bits about dispute resolution. And the German official who's taking notes here says Dr. Krebs deems it essential that this access not only be open for states, but particularly for private investors. Then, one month later, and unfortunately, I, I don't, there aren't good records to show us what's happened here. But presumably, he's gone and asked people, and they've had internal discussions that I, I don't have the records to. And the German official writes, the wish of Dr. Krebs to enable private individuals to appeal to arbitration judges cannot be satisfied. So German officials discuss adding arbitration to their investment treaties, but decide they cannot or do not want to. And the reason this official gives in this second document is that individuals don't have standing at the ICJ. But that suggests, right, that without the ICSID convention, German officials don't see how to add individual standing. They don't see how to add investor state arbitration to their investment treaty. Now, I'm actually skeptical uh, of this being the only reason why the ICJ lack of standing for why the German government doesn't want to add arbitration. I've read a lot of other documents that suggest other concerns that the German government had at this time. Right, so some in the German government thought it might create diplomatic liabilities to empower their, their investors with standing, with individual standing. So we're used to hearing a sort of depoliticization narrative around investment arbitration. That hadn't been invented yet, so the German government is thinking about it the other way, that it's going to create more diplomatic friction, not less. Um, others thought it would maybe inflame, so they're 
there are a couple of diplomatic things, but the, the thing I think is interesting um, is there are a lot of officials who emphasize that investors don't care about investor suit arbitration. So why are we going to innovate and create this new things if nobody really wants it? So this document reports um, when the International Chamber of Commerce surveyed investors in 1962, no German responded that arbitration infected the investment climate. So that is the most likely group of individuals to care about investment arbitration um, and, and zero think that it's really going to matter. So to me, it, it, this survey underlines the extent to which investor arbitration is not the result of a groundswell of investor mobilization. There are, though, a few exceptional individuals like Hermann Abs, many of whom had personal experiences of expropriation, who care very deeply and do lobby for him. So it's a little bit of both there. Um, so the headline here, though, is, at least in my reading, governments and investors probably would not have inserted arbitration into their investment treaties or would have done it much later without the World Bank's guidance. And one reason why I feel relatively confident saying that is because it's possible to trace when investor arbitration clauses appear in treaties to this document. So this is a document of model clauses that's released in 1967, 60, well, it's written in 67, released 68, 69, um, written again in ICSID, in the World Bank. Um, and then what happens is, so before this document is released, investment treaties do not contain access to investor arbitration. It's not mentioned in any. After this document comes out, Brockes then travels with it. So he disseminates it. He goes and meets government officials. And it's possible to trace the first hundred treaties that contain investor arbitration clauses to Brockes traveling with this document and having conversations with governments. It gets incorporated into European model BITs, and then from there they go and negotiate with other countries. Um, there are, of course, a lot of visits that Brockes makes with this document to national capitals that don't result in any treaties, right, in any clauses being inserted into treaties. So he doesn't always succeed, but he is out there explaining this idea and showing states how it could be done. And I think that really matters. And of course, Brockes and the Exit Secretariat um, they're not just aware, right? They're also keeping track of how many treaties. It's the only international organization at the time that's keeping track of the spread of investment treaties with access to arbitration, is ICSID at this moment. Um, they are not just aware, though. As this annual report notes from the ICSID Secretariat, they are assisting member governments and investors in setting up the provisions of consent. So the number of advanced consents becomes the benchmark that the ICSID Secretariat uses for its own success. So they report the work that they're doing in their annual reports each year. Because at this time, keep in mind, ICSID didn't have any cases. ICSID had to wait a long time for cases. Um, and so as they're waiting for cases, they're working on consent. And it also, of course, it goes beyond treaties. So I'm only talking about treaties today. Uh, but Braca has initiated a large project to catalog domestic investment laws all around the world. Um, and to assist governments in providing consent to international arbitration in their domestic investment laws, something that around 40 governments in the world still do today. Um, 120 countries have domestic investment laws. Quite a few of them still provide consent to arbitration. That all starts, it comes out of this same group of individuals. And Brockes, of course, recognizes um, what we all know today, that bits have the potential to create or give ICSID an enormous 
potential caseload or clientele, right? And this quote comes even before the first investment treaty arbitration has been filed. So Bracas is very aware of the consequences of these actions. And finally, this letter sums up my argument in the second stage for how investment, the sort of consent for um, arbitration and treaties grew. This is a letter from Bracas to an official in New Zealand. Um, and he's reminding that official that the official promise to give ratification of this convention, this isn't about treaty arbitration, um, a little push, right? So it's governments, it's states that are making the decisions to ratify exit. There are governments that are making the decisions to insert arbitration into their treaties. But Bracas and the exit secretariat or the World Bank are there. They're there clarifying options, drafting model clauses, reminding governments that they promised to ratify or insert this treaty language. And I think those actions often don't attract much attention, right, in international legal scholarship, but also in other forms of scholarship, because we tend to focus on the big negotiations, right, the moments of interstate bargaining. But if we take the longer view, I think these small actions really can accumulate over time and be transformative, right? We could have gradual revolutions. And so when it comes to constructing the architecture for treaty arbitration, I, I think it's the work of the Secretariat in these early years that's really crucial to explaining how we got here. So that's the close of the second moment. Now, the third moment I wanna discuss is America's embrace of investor-state arbitration. And I, I will be brief on this one. I know I've been talking for a while already. As you know, the U.S. was quite lukewarm, or you might not know, but you can expect the U.S. was quite lukewarm about the idea of ICSID in the 1960s. The American government response to ICSID is loosely, we aren't going to lead, but if you, Brockes, can get this off the ground, we'll support it, we will join, is sort of the U.S. line. Um, so by 1966, the World Bank has gotten ICSID off the ground. The US government starts to ratify. And we can see in the ratification debates that happen in the US what officials are thinking, what their reasoning is. So first, American officials seem to have quite low expectations for ICSID. I think we should be clear on that. The main problem for investment protection was Latin American states to US officials. And so this is from the Foreign Relations Committee hearing um, and Senator Fulbright asks a lot of really entertaining, really pointed questions of the State Department legal advisor. And, and one of those is, um, will any Latin American states sign? And the answer is basically no, right? Latin American governments were not expected to ratify. They didn't ratify for about 20 years. Um, so for the US, ICSID is not going to address any immediate problems. But when the State Department legal advisor testifies, in support of American ratification, he gives two reasons for ratification. The first is to improve the international investment climate. And I think this term investment climate is really interesting. It has the perfect kind of constructive ambiguity for officials, right? Because it's not promising more investment, but it's saying it will make the framework of rules and laws around investment better. But it also kind of connotates additional investment. So it's, it's perfect, right? It's doing exactly what we would want that term to be doing. Um, so improve the investment climate, and second, a gradual evolution in the substantive law. And this is very interesting, right? Because we don't often hear this as a justification for why a country might want to sign exit. But the State Department official testifies, it is anticipated that decisions through the convention's mechanism will create a significant new body of international law. 
Now in the 1960s, right, this must have seemed like a really questionable strategy given that A, ICSID didn't have any cases, and B, there was incredibly low transparency around arbitration awards, right? They were confidential, including at ICSID. We could know that the cases existed, but you wouldn't necessarily know the legal reasoning of the case. And yet, over the long run, I think this worked, right? A long line of arbitration awards has contributed, alongside increasing transparency, to resolving a lot of the controversies about the content of investment law in ways that favor the sorts of strong protections, the sorts of standards that the US government sought in the 1960s. And this was arguably the best strategy, the best option that the US government had at that time for resolving the content, for resolving disputes over international investment law. Right? The US is seriously outvoted in the UN General Assembly resolutions on investment at this time. It is not looking good. So that's on one side. But on the other side, a lack of, a, of substance is crucial for American ratification. So in 1960s America, it's going to be hard for you to believe, but it was fractured and polarized around <laughs> the topic of investment protection standards. And so Senator Hickenlooper, Burke Hickenlooper, could credibly threaten to veto anything that didn't meet his incredibly high standards um, for investment protection or for expropriation. So Hickenlooper, as you see here, feels that ICSID has no guidelines for determining value, and that's crucial to his support. So the US government, instead of caught between two poles, it doesn't have a lot of options. ICSID turns out to work very well in achieving its strategic aims. Yet, of course, um, because it is still international law with binding enforcement, right? And we know the US government it does not typically embrace international courts. So the sentiment does come up during US ratification of the ICSID Convention. And there's a fascinating, there's a series of letters um, between the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, which has a serious concern that the ICSID Convention will impair the SEC's ability to regulate. And so the SEC chairman in the 1960s wants the US to declare an exception to the ICSID Convention um, for financial regulation, which is incredibly interesting, kind of post-Argentina cases and something that Elizabeth Warren 60 years later is also very concerned about. Um, so in response, here's what the State Department says. They assuage that concern by writing that consent would be given on a case-by-case -case basis, so they don't think about the possibility of treaty arbitration at that time. And they say, there appears to be little likelihood of claims against the US. So that's the key for why it's okay for the US to ratify. We won't be a respondent. So those are the hurdles to US ratification, and they come out in the Committee, for, um, the committee on Foreign Affairs, or even a little bit before that in some of these early letters. So on the Senate floor, there's almost no debate around the ratification of ICSID. There is one speech, and it's called A New Hope for Developing Countries. And it's just idealistic, right? It's relatively empty when it comes to both ideas about international law or kind of what ICSID is actually going to do. So that was the thinking when America ratified the ICSID Convention. Um, so I had originally planned to speak about some American treaties, especially the negotiations with Poland and Argentina, um, where arbitration is reimagined as sort of a strong enforcement mechanism in the service of liberalization and privatization, much more ambitious goals than it had been previously. Um, so we could have a discussion about how justifications for arbitration change over time, but I think, I think I'd actually like to leave it there so that we have more 
time for discussion because uh, I'd love to hear what, what you have to say. Thank you.